This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. All right, I've been asked uh, to speak about the fifth way. The fifth way is the argument that, in brief, reasons from the reality of natural teleology to the existence of some intelligent cause by which natural things are directed to their end. I want to begin by framing my remarks about the fifth way in light of some of the earlier presentations in this symposium, particularly in light of some of Father James' opening remarks on Friday, and in light of a theme that was emphasized in both Father Philip Neary and Dr. Frey's talks yesterday about the first and second ways. I'm going to begin with the latter. We heard from Father Philip Neary and from Dr. Frey yesterday that there's something rather limited about the intentional content of the conclusions of the first and second ways, such that it may not be, or maybe just is not, immediately evident that a first mover put in motion by no other, or a first uncaused efficient cause, must be unique, personal, or providential, the one true God confessed by Catholic faith. It is the case, however, in St. Thomas's mind that the content of the conclusions of his five ways, perhaps singly, perhaps jointly, must provide an adequate starting point through which it can be shown, through further argumentation, that this cause that we call God is absolutely simple, universally perfect, unqualifiably good, infinite, omnipresent, immutable, eternal, unique, omniscient, loving, providential, and so forth. That is, all of the conclusions for which St. Thomas argues concerning God in questions 3 to 26 of the Summa Theologiae. On this point, I would note that if one inspects the argumentation in questions 3 to 26 and looks for St. Thomas's direct appeals to the conclusions of the five ways, one first notes that explicit appeals to the conclusions of the first, third, fourth, and fifth ways are in fact rather few and far between. There is one direct appeal to the characterization of God as unmoved mover in question three, article one. There are two appeals to the fourth way's characterization of God as good and best or as most excellent, both of these also found in question three. There are no explicit direct appeals to the characterization of God as a being necessary through himself anywhere in the first 26 questions of the Summa, and the only appeals to the claim that God is intelligent in order to draw further conclusions about God appear after question 14, in which St. Thomas proves that God has knowledge without appeal to the conclusion of the fifth way. This is to say that at no point does St. Thomas offer an argument about God in questions 3 to 26, in which his argument depends exclusively upon the conclusion of the fifth way. Both within question 3 and throughout questions 3 to 26, one finds instead an overwhelming preference, if this is the right way to put it, for appealing to the conclusion of the second way and appealing to the assertion that God is the first being, a first cause that is a cause with respect to the being of other things. Now, this latter might be regarded as a common element in the conclusions of the second, third, and fourth ways, perhaps of the first and fifth ways, depending upon how these arguments are interpreted. I would just note in passing for anyone who's familiar with um, an existential interpretation of the five ways, uh, the sort of interpretation you find in Joseph Owens uh, or more recently in Ed Fazer, um, even though I, I disagree with a strict existentialist interpretation of the five ways, nevertheless, the feature of questions 3 to 26 that I've just noted is a pretty strong point in favor of. It makes the, the sort of existentialist reading very attractive. The existentialist reading is the reading according to which all five ways should be understood as identifying God as ipsum esse subsistence that causes the existence of all other things. That is, in fact, God's causal priority with respect to being is the most important principle from which Thomas goes on uh, to reach further conclusions about God in the following questions of the Summa. Okay, 
All of this is to say, um, be that as it may, with respect to everything that I just said, my immediate point is this, in some way, we might say that the stakes for the fifth way, as an argument for the existence of an intelligent source of finality in nature, the stakes are a little bit different if the project of St. Thomas's philosophical theology, in fact, doesn't really depend upon the success of this argument in particular. Now, perhaps one could build an entire philosophical theology out of the conclusion that there exists an intelligence that is the source of natural teleology, but this is simply not how St. Thomas proceeds in the succeeding questions of the Summa. On the other hand, the fifth way is the only argument that could stand on its own immediately as an argument for a divine being that is personal and providential. And so there's a certain attractiveness about what St. Thomas is up to in the fifth way. I also want to advert to a theme from Father James' introduction on Friday evening. I think it is important that there are different ways of approaching philosophical theology in general, different ways of approaching the five ways in particular. We can approach these arguments philosophically, rigorously, as purported demonstrations. We can approach them in a more apologetic mode as possible, probable, or persuasive arguments. We can approach them theologically as paving the way for the work of sacred theology as reason in service of understanding the mysteries of faith. And we can approach them spiritually in a mode grounded in and ordered towards prayer. Now, as the speakers in this symposium are all professional academic philosophers, it should be no surprise that for the most part, we have tended to analyze the five ways as attempted philosophical demonstrations, albeit within the limits of time. We've spelled out the meaning of the premises, exhibited the structure of each way as an argument, argued in favor of the premises, and tried to respond to some typical objections. But again, we've done all this within the brief limits of time. Within those limits, even one convinced of the claim that the five ways, or one of the five ways, is in fact a successful philosophical demonstration can at best offer in 40 minutes only a defense of the plausibility of the argument, resulting in persuasion rather than demonstrative certainty. Now, for some of the ways, though, the task of providing a proper philosophical defense of the premises, of doing the, the rigorous philosophical work of defending them as demonstrations, requires more work and time than some of the other ways. Now, as Dr. Frey noted yesterday, even for the second way, it's necessary to bring some metaphysical notions taken by St. Thomas for granted to bear in our thinking through the content of the second way. It, it's difficult to think about the second way without thinking about the distinction among the four kinds of causes. Similarly, there's no understanding of the first way without some consideration of what St. Thomas means by the notions of potentiality and actuality. There's no consideration of the third way without exploring what he means by necessity and contingency. But on the whole, I think the first three ways can all be explicated rather quickly in terms of the philosophical notions they presuppose even if these notions are controversial for some interlocutors or if the premises need some extended defense, especially as in the case of the third way. But in this respect, I think the fourth and the fifth ways stand out as rather different. Much more in the way of metaphysical commitments peculiar to Thomism are at issue in any rigorous philosophical defense of the premises of these two arguments. And in a way, these arguments, the fourth way and the fifth way, I think reflect in a much more robust way the character of St. Thomas's metaphysics and some of the peculiarities of his Neoplatonic Aristotelianism or Aristotelian Neoplatonism, whichever of those you might prefer. Now, the fourth way, in fact, is uh, a favorite of many recent Thomists, particularly of Father Lawrence Dewan in particular, whose name has been mentioned uh, many times in our symposium. Um, even though at the same time, the fourth way is also, as uh, Father Ambrose mentioned yesterday, the way most often skipped over, given short shrift in presentations of the five ways. 
I think what's going on there is that the fourth way can be a deeply intuitive argument for a Thomist who thinks metaphysically with Thomas. I would suggest that something similar is true concerning the fifth way. The fifth way reflects several peculiar views of St. Thomas concerning the order among the causes, the order of the cosmos, in such a way that one who looks at the cosmos in a manner sympathetic to St. Thomas's vision of the cosmos will find the fifth way compelling. At the same time, if we approach the five ways as persuasive arguments or arguments intended for apologetic purposes, the fifth way is also the one way most proximate to, most similar to, one of the most popular and persuasive sorts of arguments for God's existence, namely a design argument. St. Thomas himself presents something very much akin to his fifth way in a popular work that he wrote, his exposition on the Apostles' Creed. At the very beginning of this work, his, when he's expositing the very first line of the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, he offers us the following. Among all those truths which the faithful must believe, this is the first they must believe, namely that there is one God. But it must be considered what this name God signifies, which is nothing other than the ruler and provider of all things. So God is the ruler of the cosmos and he is provident. Uh, that's even what Thomas Elsewhere will explain is even like etymologically what he thinks the, the, the term theos means, uh, that it, um, or the, the term deus, right, from theos, uh, comes from a word for overseeing, okay, governing the cosmos. Okay. So the word God signifies the ruler and provider of all things. Continuing, for he believes God to exist, who believes all things of this world to be governed and provided for by him. But he who believes all things come about by chance does not believe God to exist. But no one is found as foolish as one who does not believe that natural things are governed, provided for, and disposed, since they proceed in a certain order and at certain times. For we see the sun and the moon and the stars and all other natural things to follow a determinate course, which could not occur if they were caused by chance. Whence, if there were someone who did not believe God to exist, he would be a fool. For, as the psalmist says, the fool said in his heart, there is no God. So here, in a popular work addressed to a much wider audience of Christians than those who are beginners in theology, the governance and providence of the natural order is presented as patently obvious to anyone who isn't a fool. That he regards the denial of the conclusion of the fifth way as foolish does not prevent St. Thomas from expounding this argument, the argument from order, in a more careful and precise way, both in the fifth way and the Summa Theologiae and in numerous other texts. Um, Thomas does think that something like an intuitive design argument is a persuasive reason why people should think that God exists. Okay? And sometimes in, in treatments of the five way as a rigorous philosophical demonstration, it's important to distinguish what St. Thomas is doing in the fifth way uh, from many versions of design arguments. That, and I think design arguments, most of them at best, could be persuasive in Thomas's view. But Thomas actually has a rather positive attitude about the persuasive force of design arguments. Okay. All right, that being said, we will turn now to the fifth way, and we will address it uh, in a philosophical mode, uh, treating it rigorously as uh, an attempted demonstration. Here's the text of the fifth way. Quote, the fifth way is taken from the governance of things. For we see that some things which lack cognition, namely natural bodies, operate for the sake of an end which is clear because they operate always or very frequently in the same way, such that they pursue what is best. Whence it is clear that they achieve therein not by chance, 
but by intention. But those things which do not have cognition do not tend to an end unless directed by something with knowledge and intelligence, as the arrow is directed by the archer. Therefore, there exists some intelligence by which all natural things are ordered to an end, and this we call God. Okay, so as we've seen with the other ways, each of the five ways begins with the identification of some feature of the world that's going to serve as a starting point for an argument, insofar as that feature of the world is going to come to be recognized as an effect that can be explained only by the existence of a cause that everyone calls God. Following the pattern of the other ways, the fifth way of proving God's existence in the Summa Theologiae is, St. Thomas tells us, from the governance of things. Although, as it turns out in the argument, that things in the world must be governed or directed by an intelligence is, in fact, something for which we must argue. It's really part of the conclusion of the argument. And we're going to argue for that conclusion on the basis of some more fundamental claims about things found in the world. In the fifth way's presentation, the more fundamental claim is that natural bodies that lack cognition operate, quote, always or very frequently in the same way, such that they pursue what is best. And from this, it follows, St. Thomas argues, that natural bodies achieve their ends by intention, which they cannot do unless they are directed by something with knowledge, something with intelligence. And so there must exist some intelligence that directs natural things towards their ends. Okay, so two premises are of central importance in the fifth way. First, that some things lacking cognition, namely natural bodies, operate for the sake of an end. And second, that if a thing lacking cognition tends to an end, it must be directed by something with knowledge and intelligence. Okay. Of course, you uh, put those together and you'll get the conclusion there exists some director of things that is intelligent. Now, Considering these premises together and thinking about the way in which the fifth way is sort of historically situated as an argument indebted to the Aristotelian tradition and an argument that precedes the modern scientific revolution, uh, we find some in the fifth way something rather curious in the combination of these two premises. We find an argument that can at once frustrate both those who reject natural teleology, which is the popular narrative goes, we all did a long time ago with the rise of modern science. And it can frustrate those who defend natural teleology with Aristotle. For many interpreters of Aristotle take it that the acceptance of the first premise here will entail the rejection of the second premise. But I'll return to that point in just a little bit. Concerning the first premise, in many recent presentations of the fifth way, the recognition of any teleology in nature, if this should be granted, that any single natural thing aims toward any final cause or end by tending to act or operate to produce some determinate effect, that A regularly brings about B, that, for example, one particle tends to interact with another particle in a certain way as electrons repel one another, these sorts of minimal examples of natural teleology, if they are accepted as examples of teleology, this is all that's at issue in St. Thomas's claim that natural bodies, quote, always or frequently act in the same way, uh, such that they pursue what is best. Now, although it's possible to construe St. Thomas's argument in the fifth way along these lines, and to read this, this first key premise is just talking about anything in nature recognized as acting, tending towards any determinate result, that that's all you need, right? 
in recognizing teleology and nature to make the argument work. Um, and I will say there's a certain attractiveness about construing the argument in this way, as both Gary Goulagrange and Ed Fazer more recently have done, in part in the face of Darwinian explanations of the emergence by chance of complex structures and living things, there is a certain attractiveness about making the argument just about the sort of barest minimal claim about natural things tending towards determinate results. I would suggest that this is not quite all that St. Thomas himself has in mind in the fifth way. And I would suggest that we need to attend to what St. Thomas might mean in saying that things that act in the same way always, or for the most part, pursue what is best. Okay. I want to call attention to the claim that Thomas is asserting that natural things, by acting always or very frequently in the same way, pursue what is best. All right, to fill out something of what I think is going on in this part of the fifth way, um, a theme that came up a couple of times yesterday is that for each of the five ways, you know, there are parallel texts in Thomas that can shed light. You know, what's in the five ways are very brief statements of arguments that get greater elaboration elsewhere, either in Thomas's sources or in other texts of St. Thomas. So it's always helpful to look at parallel texts where Thomas gives similar arguments and it can help to shed light right, on the contents of any of the five ways. And I would suggest that there's something like that going on in this case. Uh, so I want to consider some parallel texts. First, uh, there's, a, a, there's a bunch that we could consider, but we're going to consider just a couple of sources. First, let's consider the following from Book 1, Chapter 44 of the Summa Contra Contiles. This is, I think, the, the single closest parallel to the fifth way uh, in the Summa Contra Contiles. Now, that's worth noting because there is another rough parallel to the fifth way in Book 1, Chapter 13 of the Summa Contra Gentiles, an argument that Thomas credits St. John Damascene as a, as a source for. Uh, but this argument in Chapter 44 is a closer parallel to the fifth way of the Summa Theologia. Okay, what do we find in this argument? Quote, everything which tends determinately to some end either establishes the end for itself or the end was established for it by another. Otherwise, it would not tend to this rather than to that end. But natural things tend to determinate ends, for they do not pursue what is naturally useful by chance, for then what is naturally useful would not exist always or for the most part, but rarely, for chance is of such rare occurrences. Since, therefore, they do not establish the end for themselves, because they do not know the notion of an end, it is necessary that the end be established for them by another who is the establisher of nature. And I, I rather like this phrase in the Latin, institutor naturae, right? the establisher of nature. But this is the one who gives existence to all and is the existence necessary through itself, which we call God, as is clear from what was said above. But he, God, could not establish the end of a nature unless he had understanding, and therefore God is intelligent. Now, one controversy about the fifth way in the Symmetriologia is whether in its conclusion it should be taken as concluding to something that is an efficient cause of the natures of things. Um, taking for granted that a thing tends towards its end because of its nature, through its nature. So one way of reading the fifth way is that it's arguing for the cause of the nature that tends towards an end. And that's different from thinking that the fifth way merely concludes that there's like an, an extrinsic intelligent cause that, right, as it were, pushes things towards their ends from without. Okay. Uh, as, you know, in the, in the text of the fifth way, the, the suggested parallel is as the archer directs the arrow, okay, acting from without. Well, in this respect, this parallel argument from Book 1, Chapter 44 is very clear. It identifies God as the institutor nature, the establisher of nature, the causal source of the teleology imminent in created natures. God is not merely an extrinsic mover directing things to ends. 
I would also note that this text's emphasis on the determinate ends pursued by natural things is, is certainly compatible with the reading of the fifth way that I just mentioned that focuses on the barest teleological tendency of an individual natural thing. But as I highlighted before, the claim in the fifth way that things tending towards an end pursue what is best. So here I would highlight the reference to the naturally useful that is said to be pursued by natural things. What does St. Thomas have in mind by this? Well, for this, the physics of the Latin Aristotle, that is, Aristotle was translated into Latin, and St. Thomas's commentary on Book 2 of Aristotle's Physics, beginning in Lesson 12, will provide a very clear indication of what St. Thomas has in mind when he speaks of nature pursuing what is naturally useful or nature pursuing what is best. So St. Thomas introduces his commentary on Aristotle's defense of the reality of natural teleology in Book 2 of the Physics. This is the place to go um, to, to see where Aristotle defends the reality of natural teleology. It's in the later chapters of Book 2 of the Physics. This is what Thomas says introducing that discussion. Quote, Aristotle says first, therefore, that it must be said first that nature is among the number of those causes which act for the sake of something. Okay. And it's been established at this point in the argumentation of book two that nature is both matter and form. So we have the distinction between matter and form. And now we're told that nature acts for the sake of something. Nature acts for an end. But then Thomas, this is the very beginning of his commentary on this part of uh, book two. He says, quote, and this is relevant to the question of providence. For those things which do not know the end do not tend to the end unless directed by something with knowledge, as the arrow is directed by the archer. Whence, if nature acts for the sake of an end, it is necessary that it be ordered by someone intelligent, and that's the work of providence. So this is Thomas commenting on, on Aristotle. Now, as I indicated a moment ago, most contemporary interpreters of Aristotle uh, nowadays would balk at St. Thomas's suggestion that Aristotle's defense of natural te teleology has immediate relevance for the question of providence, or that Aristotle's arguments for natural teleology imply that there must exist an intelligent cause that orders nature. Aristotle responds in this part of the physics to an objection against natural teleology, according to which the fact that natural things are not observed to deliberate is taken as evidence that they cannot act for an end. And obviously, Aristotle grants natural things, natural bodies that are not living do not deliberate, and yet they pursue ends. Now, many recent readers of Aristotle take this to mean that Aristotle clearly denies the need for any sort of cognition as a prior cause of natural teleology. And I'll return to this point again a little bit later, um, since the assertion for such a need is a claim, it's that second key premise in the fifth way. Okay. Uh, but I want to follow a little bit more what we find in uh, the commentary on the physics in this section, because it is going to clarify for us what Thomas means by the naturally useful and the best in those two presentations of the fifth way. All right, so this is uh, just from a little bit later in the commentary on the same part of the physics. Quote, concerning the first point, it must be known that those holding that nature does not act for the sake of something tried to confirm this view by denying that by which nature is especially seen to operate for the sake of something. But this is what supremely demonstrates that nature operates for the sake of something, namely that by the operation of nature, something is always found to come to be as good and as suitable as it can be as the foot is made by nature in such a way that it is suitable for walking. Therefore, Aristotle says that it can be objected 
that nothing prohibits nature from not acting for the sake of something or not always making what is better. So here we get the statement of an objection against natural teleology. Quote, for we find sometimes that by the operation of nature, something useful arises, which nevertheless is not the end of that natural operation, but just happens to occur. Just as we might say, and here he's quoting from the text, we might say that Jupiter reigns, that is that God or universal nature reigns or causes reign, not for the sake of this end, that the grain should grow, but rather rain occurs by the necessity of matter. And in the text of Aristotle, it goes on to say that given that sometimes when rain falls, it destroys the crops, right? It can't be said that rain falls in order that the crops will grow, okay? So that's the objector against natural teleology. It's not the case that rain falling is for a good, okay? Rain falls because water is heavy. Sometimes heavy water helps plants. Sometimes heavy water destroys plants. There's no teleology, right? There's nothing to be said about the falling of rain being ordered towards some good, okay? That's the objection. A little bit later in the same part of the text, the teeth of an animal are also characterized as something naturally useful and here the term is the terminology is exactly the same as what was in that text from the Simicontri Pantiles. Nat things naturally useful. The teeth of animals are characterized as things naturally useful that one might think of as having been developed by the natural operation of a growing animal ordered towards the usefulness, the utility of such a part of the body. Or one might suppose, if one is on the side of Aristotle's objectors, that, quote, nature did not make teeth thus for the sake of their usefulness, but instead teeth happened to come about by chance from material and efficient causes, and no natural process ever aims per se at the production of this useful feature of the animal. So even if things that happen to develop teeth end up making some good use of them, things that have teeth tend to chew with them, the question is this, does the animal develop teeth so that it can chew? Or does the animal chew just because it happens to have developed teeth? And that is the question, distinguishing between thinking that there is teleology in nature and denying that there's teleology in nature. All right, at this point in his commentary on physics two, St. Thomas discusses something that will seem rather pertinent to us uh, in light of our awareness of uh, neo-Darwinian explanations of the rise of living things. So St. Thomas, like Aristotle, discusses the Empedoclean theory, the theory of Empedocles, that a fortuitous mixture of the elements at the beginning of the cosmos gave rise by chance to the variety of living things such that some of those things which were arranged in a manner useful for survival, did survive, while others lacking adequate utility perished. So although the Empedoclean theory does not, um, doesn't involve the notion of descent with modification, it otherwise shares in common with a Neo-Darwinian account that the structures useful for living things arise entirely by chance, arising from the activity of material and efficient causes such that some living things end up surviving and others don't, but not because any natural process was ever ordered towards the production of what's useful for living things. Okay, all of this is to say concerning that first key premise of St. Thomas's fifth way, that when St. Thomas speaks of things acting for an end as achieving what is best or achieving what is useful, he clearly does have in mind not just the fact that heavy things consistently fall or that hot things consistently heat other things, but that natural processes act in order to produce things like feet and teeth for animals. He's also fully aware of Aristotle's principle from the De Generatione, De Generatione Animalium 
uh, on the generation of animals, that, quote, this is the most famous statement of the following uh, phrase in Aristotle, nature makes nothing in vain, but always makes from among the possibilities that which is best for the being of each kind of animal. That's Aristotle in On the Generation of Animals. There's, there's, no, there's no possibility in the fifth way that when Thomas says natural bodies tend to produce what is best, that he doesn't have in mind that Aristotelian claim about nature producing what's best for animals. Okay, all right. It is in the domain of living things that both Aristotle and St. Thomas most clearly see natural teleology, natural operations that are for the sake of something. Okay, so how do Aristotle and St. Thomas reply to these objections against natural teleology? First, concerning the Empedoclean theory of the generation by chance of various forms of living things, both Aristotle and St. Thomas object that for any kind of animal that has something like teeth, teeth are produced always or for the most part by the sort of generative activities by which a new animal is reproduced and by which a young animal grows. And in no case in which a natural process of kind X produces Y always or for the most part should Y be characterized as arising entirely by chance. If virtually every time that a new wolf is produced, teeth are developed, then one must see the generative activity of wolves as ordered towards and for the sake of the usefulness of teeth. Okay. That's a very brief statement of a very controversial argument for natural teleology. So there's a lot more that could be said about Aristotle's defense of natural teleology in this part of physics too, but we can just say for now in brief that it is in the development of the parts of animals by natural processes repeatedly observable that Aristotle finds the very clearest reason for affirming that nature acts for the sake of ends. Okay. One of the things that St. Thomas highlights in all of these texts in which he contrasts the reductionist and mechanistic view that explains nature only in terms of efficient and material causes on the one hand, and a view that recognizes the role of final causes on the other, is that it's only if we assert that there are final causes that we can say that there is something good produced by nature. Okay. So if you have any sort of intuition that it's a good thing that living things develop, or it's a good thing for the animal that its teeth and its feet develop, Thomas thinks you're only justified in asserting the goodness of those developments if you recognize them as ends, right, towards which natural processes are, are ordered. Okay, so that's a little bit more that can be said, uh, maybe in favor of, uh, in defense of this recognition of natural teleology. Now, the other case that was discussed in physics too, the other example that was given was the, the example of the rain falling, right? Isn't it obvious that we should say rain just falls because it's heavy, right? You know, we would say it's, it's, you know, it's denser than the air. That's why it falls. Sometimes it, it hits crops in a way that helps them grow. Sometimes it hits crops in a way that destroys them. And that's purely a matter of chance. Now, the following uh, remarks from St. Thomas, we have to read them um, mindful of the fact that Thomas has a very different cosmology <laughs> from our cosmology. Um, but uh, I'll, I'll try to point out at least some of the important differences in looking at this text. But let me, let me point to this, this, uh, this text. So Thomas gives uh, what is likely a surprising answer when he considers this, uh, this question, this example, the rain falling for the crop's growth. I think a lot of readers of Aristotle think that even Aristotle would say, the rain does not fall so that the crops will grow. That's not what St. Thomas concludes in his commentary. He says, quote, but it must be considered that in this argument, they, that is the objectors, offer an unfitting example. For although rain does have a necessary cause on the part of matter, nevertheless, it is ordered to some end, namely, to the conservation of things generable and corruptible. Now, 
The background here is that Thomas thinks of the cosmos as this ordered series of concentric spheres surrounding the Earth, right? And the Earth is the domain where you have things made of the four elements. The things under the things under the sublunary sphere, the things subject to generation and corruption. Okay. And he thinks of water as the element that tends by its activity to uh, preserve things. Okay. Whereas fire is obviously a more destructive right, sort of element. Okay. Okay. So that's when he says here, um, rain, water is ordered to the conservation of things generable and corruptible. He, he means that very seriously. Okay, in the context of his ancient chemistry. Okay, continuing quote, for the mutual generation and corruption among these lower things is for the sake of this, that perpetual existence may, may be preserved among them. Whence the growth, um, oh, sorry, a growth of rain, uh, the fall of rain, sorry. Whence the fall of rain is unfittingly taken as an example, for this example compares a universal cause to a particular effect. What he means is, Rain falls for the sake of generation and corruption. Uh, to say that it falls in particular for the growing of the grain is, uh, is to take a particular effect rather than a universal effect. Continuing quote, but this must also be considered that growth and the conservation of the growing things on earth occurs by rain in most cases, but corruption caused by rain occurs in fewer. Whence, although rain is not for the sake of destruction, nevertheless, it does not follow that it is not for the sake of conservation and growth. So Thomas thinks, this is the way that Thomas thinks about natural teleology. Again, in any case where you have a natural process that always, or for the most part, tends to produce some good result, you should say it is for the sake of that result. And so if most of the time that rain falls, and comes into contact with a thing that can grow, it helps that thing grow, then one can say rain is for the sake, <laughs> the falling of rain is for the sake of the growth of the living thing. This is not a claim that can be understood apart from Thomas's view about the order of the cosmos as a whole. Okay. He has this notion that the four elements in the sublunary are caused to move by the motion of the heavens. The heavens are moved by the separate unmoved movers and ultimately by God as the first mover. And what God intends through his moving of the spheres and his causing of the motion of the elements in the sublunary is the perpetuation in existence of the various kinds of things that can be generated and corrupted. Okay. So Thomas is saying that yeah, the, the growth of crops is a good towards which uh, the fall of rain is directed, is tied up with this view about the order of the whole cosmos, okay? That this is a good for which, uh, for which rain falls. This is to say there is on St. Thomas's view an order among the parts of the cosmos such that some parts and some natural processes can be said to be for the sake of other parts. And St. Thomas, in fact, thinks we can and should affirm that all non-living things in the universe are in some way for the sake of living things. And among living things, lower living things are for the sake of higher living things. And he thinks that we can affirm that everything other than human beings in the cosmos is for the sake of human beings. Now, it might be the case that that's a more intuitive, seemingly obvious claim in the context of St. Thomas's cosmology than it is in the context of ours, okay? Um, I would wanna defend that, I, I, I would wanna defend those claims about the order among the parts of the universe, even in our understanding of the order of the universe. But that's a much more difficult and complicated question. My point is when Thomas in the fifth way refers to natural things producing what is best, natural things producing what is useful, I think he has in mind something of this whole vision of the order of the cosmos and not just the fact that, you know, heavy things tend to fall and hot things tend to heat other things. And this is why I say that I think that the fifth way reflects um, 
something of St. Thomas's cosmological vision. Right? It, and what I said at the beginning, beginning was, if one is sympathetic to the way that one, the way that St. Thomas sees the order of the cosmos, then the fifth way is going to be a very intuitive way of arguing for the intelligence of the first cause. Okay, okay. But this first key premise in the first way is uh, certainly a disputed premise. Okay. Um, and, you know, I can only say so much in a few minutes to, to give a defense of it. Okay, I've said a lot at this point, touching on what I think St. Thomas has to have in mind in that first key premise of the fifth way. He has in mind things like biological teleology and the order among the parts of the cosmos. All right, what about the second key premise? The second key premise was, if natural things are for the sake of what is best and useful, they must be directed by some intelligence. What if that objection from the contemporary Aristotelian that for Aristotle, nature need not be directed by anything cognitive, since it's obvious that natural things act without deliberation. You don't, you don't see heavy things thinking about falling before they fall. Okay? You don't see the growing wolf pausing and thinking about how it's going to grow its teeth. Okay? You just observe the, uh, the result unfold. All right. It's precisely in his commentary on this part of Book 2 that St. Thomas asserts that nature is, in fact, the art of the divine. So for better or worse, as far as uh, the contemporary Aristotelian is concerned, it's precisely at the point where Aristotle is discussing the claim that nature acts without deliberation, that Thomas concludes that therefore nature is divine art. All right, so this is uh, the last long quote that I'll be giving you. Quote, for it seemed to some that nature does not act for the sake of something because it does not deliberate. But the philosopher says that it is unfitting to hold this opinion. For it is obvious that art acts for the sake of something, and nevertheless it is manifest that art does not deliberate. Nor does the artisan deliberate insofar as he has the art, but only insofar as he falls short of the certitude of the art. So think of the difference between an excellent musician and a beginning musician. The excellent musician doesn't pause to deliberate about how to play the instrument. It's the struggling beginning musician who pauses and messes up. Hence, the most certain arts do not deliberate, as the writer does not deliberate how he should form letters. Moreover, those artisans who do deliberate, after they have discovered the certain principles of the art, do not deliberate in the execution. Thus, one who plays the harp would seem most inexperienced if he should deliberate in playing any chord. And from this it is clear that an agent does not deliberate, not because he does not act for an end, but because he has the determinate means by which he acts. Hence, since nature has the determinate means by which it acts, it does not deliberate. For nature seems to differ from art only because nature is an intrinsic principle and art an extrinsic principle. For if the art of shipbuilding were intrinsic to wood, this is an example taken from Aristotle, if the art of shipbuilding were intrinsic to wood, a ship would have been made by nature in the same way as it's made by art. And this repeats one of the other arguments for natural teleology. If you were going to make a plant, you'd go about doing it the same way that nature does. So when you do it for the sake of an end, you follow the same procedure that nature follows. Okay? You would follow the same procedure that nature follows. And so we should conclude that nature acts for an end. Okay? That's one of the other arguments. Okay? So if the art of shipbuilding were intrinsic to wood, a ship would have been made by nature in the same way as it's made by art. And this is most obvious in the art which is in that which is moved, although peroxidens, such as in the doctor who cures himself, for nature is very similar to this art. Hence, it is clear that nature is, this is where Thomas is going beyond Aristotle, just to, to acknowledge, this is the point where for the Aristotelian they get off the, they get off the train, okay? For some contemporary Aristotelians, okay? Quote, hence it is clear that nature is 
nothing but a certain kind of art, that is, the divine art impressed upon things by which these things are moved to a determinate end. It is as if the shipbuilder were able to give to timbers that by which they would move themselves to take the form of a ship. Now, as Aristotle defends the claim that nature acts for an end because art acts for an end and nature and art are very similar, St. Thomas extends the reasoning of Aristotle to conclude that nature and art are so similar that nature, in fact, is the art of a higher intelligence, that it is an art impressed on things by the establisher of nature. Now, on its own in this text, St. Thomas's extension of Aristotle's analogy between nature and art to conclude that nature is itself the art of a higher intelligence might seem as a, maybe a bit of a stretch. But I would note that it is consistent with how St. Thomas treats one of the most controversial questions in Book 12 of Aristotle's Metaphysics, namely the question of whether the unmoved mover is a cause only by way of final causality or also by way of efficient causality. And in brief, the way that St. Thomas reads Book 12 of Aristotle's Metaphysics is that the unmoved mover is not only a final cause desired by all of the things in the cosmos, it needs to be the case that this unmoved mover intends the order by which the cosmos is ordered towards himself. Okay. So there is an argument for God's intelligence, the unmoved mover's intelligence in Book 12 of the metaphysics. And Thomas thinks we, in fact, should identify Aristotle's unmoved mover as an efficient cause of other things, as the source of the natures of things. So this is just to say that at least St. Thomas is consistent in the way that he interprets Aristotle. Um, and he does give a rather different reading of Book 12 of the Metaphysics from how now, again, many contemporary readers of Aristotle are of the view that for Aristotle, the unmoved mover is only a final cause desired by other things. And there's not, in the end, there's no explanation to be given of why the universe has the order that it has. It's just, well, it is all ordered towards the unmoved mover, and that's that. Right? We're on Thomas's view the order needs to have had a source. If we affirm that all things are ordered in this intelligible way towards the unmoved mover, then we should affirm that the unmoved mover is the ultimate source of that intelligible order. 